Do you see this writing? Do you know what it means? Hospitality. And you can't piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. Um, I'm going to need you to go ahead and come in tomorrow. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Tell you what, I'll take Miss Barrett back to her apartment and check her out. I'll go check out Miss Barrett's apartment. I'm not even supposed to be here today. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Statistical fact. Cops will never pull over a man with a huge bong in his car. Why? They fear this man. They know he sees farther than they. He will bind them with ancient logics. Welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of guys who are part of a film society at the University of Central Oklahoma have kept on podcasting and doing film theory with the movies you'll never actually look at while taking a film theory course. Uh, this week we're going to be looking at a film that has no business at all in a film studies course, no. The Boondock Saints, and we'll be applying some analysis or vitriol and venom and maybe a little bit of both. All three. Let's, let's introduce um, the voices, the disembodied voices speaking to you through your um, generic multimedia podcasting device or stereo speakers. Um, across the table in the green, blue plaid, um, quite Celtic. Definitely gray. Um, Kelly gray, blue shirt. I think he's just making stuff up. I am. Yeah. Dustin, it's definitely gray. Uh, I'll take an onion bagel with cream cheese. <laughs> My name is Dalton Stewart. And it's true what you've heard. I am the funny man. <laughs> oh, no. The only Irish-looking fellow at the table, if you'd introduce yourself. I am Arthur Gordon, and I guess I'll just have a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to my, uh, across the table, and to my left, who are you, sir? My name is Dustin Sells, and I am so glad. And all I want to say is, uh, Pater de Calius Deus, Filii Redemptor Mundi Deus, Spiritus Sancti Deus, Sancti Trinitas Unus Deus, to you all. And I'm so glad to be uh, here at this table with this religiously toned um, smear of crap um, that we're going to be examining today called The Boondock Saints. Um, This is an analysis show, not a review show. So we are going to be spoiling away. In the end, they all find their lucky charms and live happily ever after. And uh, so that's going to happen later on in the show. But until then, after our review portion, we will try to keep it spoiler-free. But until then, or rather before then, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, if you would, sir. Fraternal twins set out to rid Boston of the evil men operating there while being tracked down by an FBI agent. All the way to the FBI. <laughs> so let's, let's go ahead and give our quick reviews, our thumbs up, our thumbs down. Does it work? Does it not work? And why, if we even know? Uh, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say, sir? I think this movie has some fun moments. I I laughed out loud a couple of times. Like Dalton said, not a lot, but there were a couple of moments where I laughed. I think there are a couple of nicely stylized sequences mm-hmm. in the film. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy the reconstruction of the extermination essentially at the house. I can't remember whose house it is, but Willem Dafoe essentially puts himself into the scene. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just really well done. Um, overall I can see the I think I can see the appeal for fourteen to eighteen year olds yeah. who really like this movie because it's something where it makes them I think think a little more highly of themselves seeing a film like this. Because mm-hmm. it's 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 not pulp fiction by any means. But it, it it's trying to be something similar, I think. Desperately. And so um I, but by the end, I think it's kind of forgettable. I kind of completely tuned out by the end. Um, I I think the writing is really hitting missing points. My biggest qualm is the editing. Mm-hmm. The the dissolves and the sweeps every time almost. I don't think there are. I mean, there are hardly any jump cuts except within probably scenes themselves. But transitioning between sequences, it's all all fade to black, dissolve, or just a sweep, and it's just weird. I think it really hurts the pacing of the film. Um, and I'd also suggest, you know, you cut about 15 minutes. You could cut this down to about 90 minutes and be safe. Be You'd get your point and go home with it. So, 
Oh, Ron. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Mr. Arthur Gordon, for that. Mr. Dolph Stewart, what do you say? When I was 14 years old, or maybe 13, thereabouts, uh, I, I first saw this film. And I'm, I'm going to review this film twice, both briefly. <clears throat> Uh, when I saw this film, 15, uh, 14, 13, uh, I fell in love. At 15, they re-released this film uh, for one night only. Uh, they released the director's cut, which had just been finally cut together with an introduction uh, from Troy Duffy uh, addressing, the, you know, just kind of talking about the cult following. And it was one of the happiest theater-going experiences of my life. I got to, to see a film that I, I enjoyed immensely on the big screen. Uh, shortly after that, my friend, one of my best friends in the world, Bryce Garrison, from uh, second grade to like eleventh grade, uh, bought the um, the director's cut, and we would go over to his house pretty much every day after school and watch it, at least once a week. Uh, I thought this film was hysterical. Oh, that was so funny. Uh, I enjoyed the action scenes. I thought the the comedy bits were just absolutely hysterical. Just really a bust of gut laughing. Um, I thought the film had something interesting to say about the criminal justice system. Uh, I, I just really enjoyed this film. Watching this film a couple of days ago, uh, the first time I've seen it since I was a teen, uh, it, once again, to, to not undersell things, I had not one but two Boondock Saints t-shirts in high school. Watching this film yesterday, or the day before yesterday, whenever I watched it, I was so very dumb. This is, <laughs> this is not a good movie. Uh, I find this movie... Uh, I wouldn't go as far as to say it's morally reprehensible. Uh, well, let me phrase it. I would say it's morally reprehensible. I would, not go as far as, I would not go as far as to say it's morally repugnant. I would say that Troy Duffy thinks he's saying something interesting. Um, I, I think part of him... Uh, if he were a better filmmaker, if he were a smarter filmmaker, uh, I, I think he wanted more of you to be questioning the morality of what these guys were doing. Um, I, I just don't think he's a very good filmmaker. I, I think, I think. But does that not make it repugnant? No, it just makes it bad. I don't think that it doesn't make it reprehensible. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. It's just. Do, do what our main character set out to do. Is it is it wrong? Yes, it's so wrong. Uh, is that Troy Duffy's fault? Yes. D- does he condone what they're doing? I don't know. I don't think so. I think there's enough <laughs> moments where you're pointed at questioning what they're doing uh, being wrong that it's possible. He wants you to at least consider it, but he doesn't do it very well. He didn't do it well enough for a 15-year-old to get it. That's for damn sure. Because uh, I thought this was the coolest thing in the world when mm-hmm. I was 15. Um, now, you know, being an adult who's actually put some thought into what it means, uh, you know, with capital punishment and the criminal justice and what it all means, it's just, it's really problematic. Uh, and yeah, I'm with Arthur. Technically, it's just not a very good film. Um, I don't find this one nearly as funny as uh, I did a long time ago. Although, I will always laugh at the line, I'll kill myself right now if you can you tell me the name of your cat. <laughs> <laughs> that, the, that sequence, from, from when Rocco finds out what they're doing till Rocco joins them officially, is really funny. That whole, mm-hmm. I, I still think I it's pretty some. funny. It's, yeah. I mean, there are some really funny moments in this scene. And again, I, I think the saving grace of this film is that everyone's so charismatic. I think there's a reason Norman Reedus is, you know, May the Walking Dead work, uh, as far as I can tell. It's about the only thing that people seem to like about it yeah. sometimes, is he's really cool. Uh, Sean Patrick Flannery, who unfortunately has never really got a lot of work. I've always liked him as an actor. Everything I've seen him in, he's fun. Willem Dafoe's always weird and awesome. Billy Connolly's a badass. Um, hmm. Everybody's, and even David Delaroca, who, as far as I can tell, has never done anything but Boondock Saints 1 and 2. Um, he's fine in this movie. He's he's you know you can tell he's an amateur actor, but I, I think he puts in some. He has good comic timing. He really does. But the, yeah, those movies a mess. I think it's only saving grace is how cool the action is presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really I'm with Arthur. I really like this idea. We fade out before we see it, and then we see people trying to figure out what the hell happened, and then we get a shot of what actually happened, all Hollywoody. That being said, I think the only cool thing about Boondock Saints too is you get an, yet another piece of that. Which is then imagining how it's gonna, how well it's gonna work out. And you only get it like twice, but then like imagining how cool it's gonna be. The cops try to figure out what happened, and then how what a cluster it actually was. Which 
I think is much more interesting. I think that that's more interesting is these guys imagining that they are super badass, yeah. uh, and then you seeing what actually happened, which is much less. And I think you do get a little bit of that, yeah. Actually, in this, yeah. Especially the scene where they go to the pool house and it's mm-hmm. just a big cluster, and yeah, uh, yeah. I think you get a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Like they, they're kind of like uh, Inspector Clouseau or um, you know somebody like that, where they they do well on accident, oh, yeah. yeah. Which I think is interesting, yeah. All right, Dustin. Let's see your, uh, how much you hate this movie. Well, you know, I want to say nice things first. You um, usually do. Um, you know, just to be fair, uh, there there are there were moments I laughed. Definitely, there were moments I laughed. Not always did I laugh because the director wanted me to laugh. Sometimes I laughed because it was so freaking stupid. Um, also, uh, there are action sequences that are well done. Yeah. I'm done now. Okay. That's all. <laughs> you know, I, Uncork I, it. I, I really wish um, I had the rope that he brought along so I could have hung myself while I was watching this movie. <laughs> I just wanted it to end. You know, Arthur said 10 minutes could come off of it. It could make it 90 minutes. I think I, two and a half hours could come off of it, and it could be not this movie at all. It, it's it's awful. The, the scripting is stupid. Uh, the tone is completely uneven. It's abs- And I haven't gotten into moral quandaries, how it's homophobic and repulsive and I would dare say repugnant. It is absolutely regressive. It is absolutely uh, just the most fascistic sort of understanding of law and order I've seen in a long time. Uh, I said off air that it was uh, Frank Miller done by somebody that's not as talented as Frank Miller. Because say what you will about Frank Miller. He is quite talented. He is. He's just a fascist. And this is somebody who, who has, yeah, has... Probably is, isn't a fascist. No, but has a junior high understanding of the criminal justice system and morality. Mm-hmm. And that's why teenagers like this. Because the world is complicated and hard. And you see a movie where a bunch of cool guys who smoke cigarettes and uh, look like cool older brothers that you don't have kill bad guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're like hell yeah, that sounds awesome yeah. with, with fine Irish accents. Yes, exactly. Oh, yeah. They're 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 sexy and they're cool and they kill bad guys. And then you know when your brain works properly, you go, oh my god, that's awful. Mm-hmm. It's really bad. I mean, yeah, the guys they kill are, are absolutely monstrous. It's not the guys they kill; it's the conversations they have about the guys they kill. Right. That's what's bad. Yes. I don't think I actually think that there is a movie in here that's not morally reprehensible. If they don't have the conversations defending what they're doing, if that makes sense. That might help. Um, also, you know... There's um, the whole tre- treatise on it. Well, that and, you know, God told me to do it sort of justification, which is a particular issue that pisses yeah. me off. All right? And so, yeah, I meant it and I said it. I mean, it makes me furious. Like, the flames and fires of a thousand suns is the hatred that I'm experiencing uh, right now uh, when I think about this. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flame, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breath. That's how furious I was. Uh, watching this movie, and again, uh, it, it is—it's ridiculous. You execute a cat for laughs, really? That moment is really funny. <laughs> it is wrong, seriously wrong. Oh, it's—it's it's terribly wrong, and it's not as funny as it was when I was fifteen. Well, yeah, uh, it got a light <laughs> chortle out of me. Yes, when I was fifteen, I would laugh so hard it hurt every time because they killed a cat and that's funny and that's not them killing the cat it's Rocco going I'm hit I'm hit I'm hit (laughs) is it dead (laughs) that is hilarious yeah so anyhow um, um, Dustin didn't love it no (laughs) that's all I have to say so um, let's do some analysis now so we we kind of generally agree that this is not the shiniest film ever but that's kind of what we do on the show isn't it so um, but it's not I mean well we'll get to our verdicts later but um, it may be lower even yet, but I digress. Uh, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what analysis bring you, sir? Well, I want to talk a little bit about the subjectivity of race. I'm sorry, you started me all over. Cut all this. I want to talk a little bit about uh, race and ethnicity as a cultural construction. Um, and I was already thinking about this um, when we decided we were going to do this movie. Uh, during the joke about... The, the quote joke that Rocco makes to Papa Joe, I was like, yeah, now I'm definitely going to talk about this. Now I know for a fact I want to talk about this. Now, I, I don't think, uh, surely, listener, 
I'm not the first person to introduce to you the theory, and when I say theory, I mean fact, <laughs> uh, that race is not a biological thing. It is something that we as people created. And you'll hear a whole lot of really dumb people try to tell you some really not scientific things about why that's incorrect. They'll start with sickle cell anemia. They'll talk about black athletes. Uh, Tell those people that they're idiots. It's phenotype, not genotype, dummy. Thank you, Dustin. So, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how white people are the only people that get to pick what race they are. Because Barack Obama's mama's white, and yet he is still the first black president. I have a very good friend uh, who is uh, of Hispanic, African, and Caucasian descent. She is black. Because her racial composition, ethnic background, her cultural background is far more complicated than that. White people get to pick, though. Mm -hmm. And that's where this movie comes into play. White people really like being Irish. Did you know, listener, that there are more people in the United States claiming Irish ancestry than there are people living on the island of Ireland? That is a fact. I did not make that up. I do not have numbers to tell you, because I'm lazy. But that is a fact. There actually are more Irish descendants here also. That is actually true. Now, yes. Plus claimants, it's like twice. Plus claimants, it's like twice. Right. Now... Am I of Irish descent? Yes. Could I really claim Irish ethnicity? No. My family's been here for as long as we know, which is about 100 years. More. Mm-hmm. I, I am about as Irish as Liverwurst, which is German. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know I like... You're about the, as Irish as a hamburger. Exactly. Which, you know, yeah, the Irish like bread and grilled meat and cheese, but... Right. That doesn't make me Irish. I wish I was, because it's super cool. I wish my grandpa was, you know, like an old Irish cop. He's not. My grandpa's like a quarter Native American. Uh, I'm just not, okay? It's just very interesting to me that white people do this thing, this ethnic appropriation. Uh, And I thought about this when I thought about the Boondock Saints, because it really started that in my age group, in in young men my age. There was a lot of that going on, particularly for the Irish. Uh, because of this movie, I, I think it's a direct, you know, result of it. If not a direct result, at least a direct influence on so many young men my age, uh, when I was that age, being really proud that they were of some Irish ancestry. Um, and, and I think it's interesting, why is that? Uh, the, there is a, a very famous book called How the Irish Became White, uh, it was released in like 1995, uh, that addresses the fact that when the Irish came here, they were very looked down upon. They were looked down upon in Europe. They were looked down upon when they came to America. They, they are one of the few white groups, white ethnic groups, that have experienced the same level of oppression, or can claim to have experienced close to the same level of oppression as some uh, non-white minority groups. What makes that fact interesting is less... That the Irish were oppressed. It's more how they came not to be oppressed. Would you like to know, dear listener? I'll tell you. It was by oppressing non-whites. Yeah. They proved their whiteness by not letting black people, their closest competition in the North, these were free blacks. This is, again, to remember, the Irish were coming over here in droves shortly after the end of slavery uh, and shortly before the end of slavery. So there was... You know, uh, for those of you who remember Gangs of New York, uh, it all takes place around an actual thing that happened, which was this huge riot in New York over the drafts that were happening for the Civil War. Uh, and that was, you know, during the Potato Famine. Again, mid-1800s to the 1920s is when we see these huge waves of Irish uh, mm-hmm. immigrants coming over. How they proved their whiteness was in the labor groups they formed to try and get to themselves some representation when they were being repressed was by not letting black people join them. Right. Well, see Jack Nicholson's monologue at the first part of The Departed. He he starts talking about, you know, how an Irishman can't get a job, and now we've got the White House, and then he starts talking about the black chappies, is what he says. Yes. Awful. Yes. But he says these words, and and again, it's in terms of they were just able to out-racist the other Exactly. Um, You know, the only other white ethnic group that can probably come close is the the Jewish peoples, Mm -hmm. um, who had it worse globally. 
obviously, but similarly in, in America. Right. Uh, they were, you know, really good at setting up enclaves, uh, you know, and the, some of them were coming over with money the Irish weren't, so it just kind of worked out that way. Sure. Uh, that's not to say anybody's better than anybody else, because we're all shitty. But my point is, white people like to be Irish because it makes them feel less white. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what um, analysis bring you, sir? Well, <clears throat> I think that the Boondock Saints had the best of intentions. I think deep down there is right. something there. I bet that all gets lost in the finished product, which has its moments, but ultimately just loud, shoot em up, mindless drivel. Mm-hmm. What I do think Saints is doing is have a, having a conversation with film and culture about violence. It's trying to. It's coming through in that same vein as Pulp Fiction, The Godfather, Dread, and films of that ilk. It doesn't do it. No. Not nearly as well. That's, but, I, I thought about this. I thought about Dread. Yeah. When watching this, I'll just, you know, because we've done it on the show. Yeah. And I thought about how Dread does what this film wants to do so yeah. much better. This film wants to be at that level, but it's not. But what Boondock Saints does do that is interesting is that it calls other films and cinematic icons into question. The repetitive name dropping of Charles Bronson, uh, the direct references to the Corleone family and The Godfather, and other references off the peak behind, offer a peek behind the curtain as what is happening in those films. Oh, is that right, Rambo? <laughs> the Saints aren't great hitmen. They're clumsy, awkward, things usually go foul. They get the do- job done in a strong, elaborate manner. Um, it seems like the Boondock Saints is having a conversation about plausibility with these other films. This running joke of the Charlie Bronson rope is pivotal to the reading. The, the rope does more to slow them down than to help them in their executions, which satirizes the efforts of those earlier vigilante films where protagonists walked in, got the job done, and left. Uh, something we see played out in Thomas Jane's The Punisher, uh, where at the end of the film he walks into a room of baddies and has his way with them, and then just leaves. Boondock Saints calls that ease of execution into question by showcasing two brothers who are effective killers as a being a bit... Bumbling and just simply lucky, mm-hmm. and we see this when they drop down and mm-hmm. they, they well, admit the, their luck. The yeah. toilet toss would be yeah. an example of bumbling luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the reference to the Godfather also raises plausibility questions because it takes quite the suspension of disbelief to accept that somebody murdered a prize horse, cut its head off, snuck it into a mansion, put it in bed where someone was sleeping without anybody noticing. I think Boondock Saints. Well, there's actually, a reason why they didn't show it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think Boondock Saints is actually having an interesting conversation with the other films. Especially since they are deliberately name-dropping specific actors, characters, and films. Instead of just referencing something as simple as, oh, this is how they do it in the movies. They're specifically naming and picking out films to talk about. Um, I think it also tries to play into the cultural fear that cinematic violence encourages real-life violence. Uh, something that's true to life within the Saints universe. They are mimicking what they have seen men do in violent films as a way and a means of cleaning up the streets. The conversation at the end of the film is truly quite disturbing when they go to the documentary-esque mm-hmm. response people to the people. On the street. Yeah. Um, this becomes quite disturbing and it hits a lot closer to home after seeing something like The Act of Killing. Uh, because while we don't like to think cinematic violence could lead to real-life violence, The Act of Killing blows that theory all to crap. Mm-hmm. Because those are real men who were influenced to exterminate human beings through the means they saw in Hollywood films that they loved. While the Boondock Saints' message is messy and problematic, I do think it had the best of intentions. I can see why a certain demographic would definitely get behind it as a film. Angsty 15-year-old voice. For me personally, the same <laughs> themes and messages have been told in better stories by better filmmakers. Absolutely. I, yeah, totally agree. Could not yeah. agree more. I, 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 I don't know how much Dustin's going to agree with this. I'm with him that this is a bad movie. I, I don't think it... I think it really... There, there's a lot of heart behind this. Well, Dustin Sells, uh, I guess we'll kick it over to you. I mean, we've, we've babbled enough. We, we've, we've put this off long enough. Go ahead and give it both barrels, buddy. Well, okay, I, I, I agree <laughs> that the intentions are good. Willem Dafoe is playing a gay character who's going to end up being heroically tied up with the hero group. Totally true. Uh, there's also this idea of the moral ambiguity of uh, vigilantism. Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, execution is what we're talking about. Functioning as judge, jury, and executioner outside of any kind of criminal justice system. Mama's not the law. <laughs> you can drop that in if you want, or you can just watch me embarrass myself. I don't care. <laughs> so there's all that going on in the movie that that is intended, and I, you know, the thing about the road to hell is it's paved with the best intentions, and this goes straight down that road. Uh, it, I again, I agree, intending to do better, but what it actually ends up doing uh, is the opposite. 
Um, the invocation of God uh, in the or in the uh, prison scene where they're where they're hanging out for the night, you yeah. know, trying to avoid the press and the crowds and whatnot, and God gives them some sort of revelation they're supposed to go do all these killings is absolutely reinforced by the hilarity that um, ties up all the killing scenes. It is the ghost in the machine that saves the day for them every single time. God is why they got hung upside down by that crazy rope that. Doofus brought. I forgot uh, what his name is. Connor Murph, uh, Murphy and Connor. I forget which one's which. I, 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 I've seen this movie dozens of times. I always forget which one's which. Um, <laughs> but anyway, Irish McIrishstein. Um, <laughs> the one he, what he does is uh, he he, God makes him work. God is the one who's working it out, and so God is somehow endorsing the pseudo foolishness. The scene beginning with this, uh, you know, the the absolute past this moral dilemma. This woman's being attacked. What do you do about it? And I, I totally understand, you know, those sorts of impossible situations. And uh, my understanding of peacemaking and peacekeeping, you know, it, within Christian theology, does not exclude uh, self-defense, nor does it exclude uh, standing by and watching someone suffer. I don't think that is at all acceptable. So, but nor is that necessarily a, a part and parcel, full-out endorsement of any sort of violence one wants to enact. And what we are experiencing as we watch this movie is the invocation of God in violence. And also we're looking at preemptive violence or uh, at least um, violence without due process to prevent further violence. So that's a bad guy. He's done bad stuff. There's a bunch of bad guys. They've, do, they've done a bunch of bad stuff. Therefore, the, the courts haven't got them. Um, there's no evidence right now to convict them. But we're going to go in and we're going to stop them ahead of time. It sounds awfully familiar when um, we start thinking about preemptive violence and the use of God for justifications in this, this use of these sort of holy war sort of languages that were used, you know, in the mid-2000s, just about four or five years thereafter. It's amazing how prescient uh, film and television in the late 90s was uh, to what we were going to experience in the post-9-11 world. Starship Troopers is a weird time-traveling movie. 1998. I mean, holy crap. Uh, oh yeah, the Starship Troopers, Boondock Saints in this case. Uh, you could look at uh, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine uh, and other, other. No one else besides you would look at Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, but you should uh, because it does sort of the same sort of things. There's been these terrible attacks. What do we want to do? Security questions of that stuff that happens after 9 11. Of course, is much more on the nose. I'm thinking of the Dark Knight film with mm. uh, Heath Ledger, uh, and, and those sorts of movies are all kind of tied in that same sort of idea that you can just invoke God and you can invoke. Uh, this sort of... Uh, higher calling. Higher calling. You can invoke this notion that uh, the world's somehow broken. And then again, you know, force these discussions of impossible situations where you you may have to, you know, uh, set a, a hard and fast principle aside, do the right thing at the right time, into this sort of completely um, black and white world where, well, we just do what we want. And that's not the same thing. It is it, not an acceptable uh, set of ethics. And again, the way that uh, William Defoe gets baptized by the lot. He's not particularly religious. He's not particularly okay. And he has this conversation with the priest inside uh, the uh, the confessional booth. And forget you, priest. I got it. Well, yet another moment where I think we're supposed to be calling in the morality of this to question into question because the priest is like, no, they're bad guys. But he's got a gun to his head. <clears throat> yeah. So I think this is another moment, and obviously the Mexican standoffy situation aside, um, you know, I don't think this priest approves of their... He says multiple times, or starts to say, you know, murder is murder. Right. Uh, you know, and is quickly silenced by gunpoint. But the effectiveness of, of the conversation seems to be... Yes. In the end, good. You know, sometimes you just got to do good things. You just got to make stuff happen. You know, mm -hmm. in the end, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. It's that sort of foolishness. I, I would quickly though point to what a, a moment of great acting in a not great movie, where Willem Dafoe has entered the you know the boss level in drag, uh, shoots <laughs> the man with the greatest expression on his. The, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. After he shoots him, and this look of abject horror, and says, "Too far, too far." Mm -hmm. And it's an it's an amazing moment. It's a really yeah, it is. It is a good moment in a 
not good movie. But it's lost. That's yes, the problem. That, it is the problem. I mean, problem. again, that, that, that's where you see that intention <clears throat> to do otherwise that's than the what first... the film does. It's completely yes. buried. Yes. Because it's Willem Dafoe and drag, and that's the punchline that we're really going yes, with. Exactly. And then the next thing we're looking at is him trying to get his hair back on. Yes. So he can go out and still be sexy hooker guy. Yeah. Which is crazy. The Willem Dafoe does not look like a woman. No, he doesn't. And he's an ugly woman. <laughs> yes, if that. If, if that. Uh, he's, he's ugly if he's a day. <laughs> but, but again, it, it's that problematic sort of, um, you know, invocation of all of these things that people do. Yeah. And what it does is it justifies actions that we see people taking in the, in the decade to follow. Mm-hmm. And that's really, really troubling. Again, it's just this use of this excess of violence, and of course, there are situations where I, I, I'm not going. I'm not trying to make a hard and fast rule here. I'm not trying to make this hard and fast understanding of how violence is supposed to be used or not to be used because I don't even know. I mean, I'm not a moral authority on any of this sort of thing. But what I want to say is this: is that what the film does is it plays at asking questions and questioning everything, and then goes ahead and makes a statement. In the end, it takes superheroes. You know, people that we can trust, great men at a great time, to stand up and do what none of us are willing to do. And if they do the bad thing, they'll actually be heroes uh, in spite of the moral ambiguity of what they do. Mm-hmm. And that is the sort of thing that creates dictatorships. That is the sort of thing that um, wrecks the world. That's what elects Adolf Hitler as chancellor. And it's it, that's what's wrong with this movie. So I guess it's time to do... Uh, the, the thing that we do every time we finish discussing a film, and that is to say, do we shelf it or do we trash it? Uh, and if you trashed it, what should you watch instead? And if you shelved it, what else should you watch? I guess we'll start with you, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Stream it. Yeah, I, I can't put it in the trash. I'm sorry, Dustin. I. Uh, it's your soul. There's some. I don't know. There's some fun <laughs> that we had, and I don't know. If you're prepared for it, I think you can mm-hmm. you can get through it and enjoy it somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um. But I think either way you go, I think you should definitely watch a better film about Irish hitmen, and that's in Bruges, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great movie. Fantastic! Check movie. out that episode, uh, Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. uh, which is having the same conversation but a billion times better. And finally, The Act of Killing, which yeah. kind of puts a lot of things into perspective about violence and cinema and culture and and where that all kind of leads to. So. Thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Um, I can't trash it. I just can't bring myself to do it. Because when I trash a film, I think that means it deserves to be jettisoned from existence and everyone's memory of it should be erased. I have really fond memories of this film. I have an, you know, an emotional attachment to this mm-hmm. film that prevents me from being totally subjective. I also don't think you should watch it. If you haven't seen this film yet, don't bother. You know, you know the, the, the t-shirts are fine. Watch the trailer. You'll get the gist of it. Uh, actually, the trailer probably better than the movie. They normally are. And st- yeah. Instead, I would say you should watch uh, Gone Baby Gone and or The Town, two much Ooh. better uh, Irish-American Boston crime films directed by Ben Affleck. Um, I'd go The Town probably over Gone Baby Gone, although I like Gone Baby Gone quite a bit yeah. as well. Gone Baby Gone's got some of that moral ambiguity in there. And, well, the, you know, the like, oh, what's right, what's wrong. The Town's just... Bitchin'. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I like that Indeed. movie a lot. I love that movie. I would agree with Arthur. You should watch Pulp Fiction because it's clear that this film desperately wants to be Pulp Fiction, as did most films after 1994. <laughs> um, most R-rated. Most most uh, action comedies and violence. Uh, I mean, you look at 95 to 99. All those films want to be Pulp Fiction. Yeah, All of them. Um, finally, I would say watch Death Sentence, which is loosely based on the second Death Wish novel, uh, directed by James Wan, starring Kevin Bacon. It's a much better brainless vigilante film that actually, um, you know, at the very least is somewhat less morally reprehensible and has a more interesting visual style. Uh, and at the very least you get to see Kevin... Kevin James. Kevin Bacon's gone. I watched that movie too. Uh, at the very least you get to see, uh... Ren McCormick from Footloose, you know, going to town on some some fools, which is kind of funny in its own right. Uh, and that's what I got for you. Dustin Sells, cap us off, bud. Trash. I mean, you know, do you just say to have it jettisoned from the existence and erased from everybody's memory is probably too good for it. Uh, because it means it still happened in the first place. Um, I, I, I want to, with my brother, 
get a duffel bag full of guns and go to the producers' homes <laughs> and pray for them. <laughs> that was humorous. <laughs> it's 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 terrible. It's oh, I hate it so much. Your text while you were watching this movie were too much fun. <laughs> oh, good. Uh, I was not pleased. Uh, uh, just really, it makes me angry to watch it. Um, so I will say trash. I mean, it's it's trash, 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 trash. Uh, what else should you watch, or rather, what instead should you watch besides anything? Um, I would suggest. Uh, well, if you're interested in um, just this idea of the uh, the the questions of violence, I think you should take take a look at Seven Psychopaths and uh, take a look at that. And that's a goodie. Yeah, it's it's a good movie and it's it's very fun and I really really liked it a couple years ago. Also, um, if you're interested in Irish. Um, crime thriller I think you should check out Kill the Irishman um, and uh, but if you haven't seen it already because it's it's about a real life story of an Irish crime boss and uh, everyone's just trying to kill him and uh, it's really interesting there's some funny moments in that um, it's kind of, sort of got a made for TV sort of feel to it and that's to its detriment but it's not bad uh, and then The Departed because it's The Departed because The Departed yeah that's and, the only reason I didn't say it is because The Departed right and so you should definitely definitely take a look at that instead um, dear listener what do you think we should watch else or instead uh, what do you think about this movie um, go ahead let me have it um, I won't fight back uh, because I'm bound not to uh, so let me know what you think about uh, what we said about this movie and our analysis and what have you and what not. I would love to hear more of that uh, from you all. Uh, we can do that through various means of social media. Arthur, do you know anything about that? Uh, yeah. First and foremost, if you're not on any of the formal social media boards, you can check us out. Uh, you can send us an email, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash goodtrashgenrecast. We have one little tidbit coming in. Um, Brandel Bay's. Uh, says that he really enjoys Silence of the Lambs, thinks it's a fantastic film, and he said he was fangirling uh, when he said that we posted that it was our new episode. And so thank you for that, Randall. And that's all I got coming in from Facebook this week. Well, thank you for that, Arthur. Uh, what is the other means of social media that you know something about, Dalton? And podcasters we shall be. For thee, my internet, for thee. Movies has streamed forth from thy Netflix that we may swiftly carry out thy analysis. And we shall flow... An RSS feed to thee, and teeming with podcasts, so shall it ever be. And no one pod being at iTunes, a spirit of Twitter. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash genre <laughs> cast at Good <laughs> <laughs> underscore Trash on Twitter. Oh my goodness! Did you did you doubt that that is what I would do? I mean. For a moment, did you think I would do anything else? Right. <laughs> oh my god, watching Dustin's reaction during all that was about the funnest thing in the world. Um, we actually don't have a whole lot of feedback coming in. First of all, at Alex V, as in versus books, um, who is a, a co-host on a yet-to-be-released bonus episode, wanted to thank us for letting her do that and for inviting her to do that with us. Um, we won't tell you what that is yet. Uh, but then Caleb Masters chimed in, uh, and said he was super excited about that episode. I'm gonna just spoil it for you. We did a Harry Potter episode. It's coming down the pipe sometime, because uh, we had access to somebody who's written a lot, uh, about Harry Potter. Um, so we, we went ahead and took advantage of that, and she just wanted to say, hey guys, appreciate, you know, you inviting me on. And then Caleb was like, oh, that sounds awesome, I'm super excited. Also, I retweeted a link that, uh, Brigham Cole sent us, um, a video entitled... What does human taste like? Question mark. That he thought he should have shared this sooner, since it related to a certain cannibal. And uh, other than a myriad of retweets and favorites, that's really all we had coming in from the Twitter verse this week. And that's that's all I've got to say uh, about Twitter this week, Dustin. Well, that's good. Uh, we're <laughs> that's gonna... good. No more. <laughs> we're glad that you're done. Uh, we're gonna move on now, and we're going to um, well, you know, it's time to play the game. This week's game is we're just going to talk about our favorite hitmen slash vigilante killer types. 
And so I'm excited to hear what these gentlemen have to say because I know they've seen a couple movies with vigilantes and or slash hitmen. Hitmen. Hitmans. Hit hitsmen. Hitsmen. <laughs> Sounds like a uh, 50s doo-wop band. The hitsmen. Yeah. The hitsmen. Yeah, the, the, they're the Kingsmen and the um Oh my god. Springdale singers. Guys, that's a movie. The Hitsmen. It's about a doo-wop group called the Hitsmen that are hitmen. You're dead to me. Uh, we're going to <laughs> we're going to play that game. Arthur, save the show. They and say do up yeah. while they assassinate people. Yes, do please. In the jungle, the mighty jungle, the lion sleeps tonight. Boom. We <laughs> we up bumblebee. Do do do. Alright, let's go down. Okay, let's see here. Ah, first, just because I already mentioned the movie a couple times, I'd say Ken from In Bruges, um, played by Brendan Gleeson. Uh, great role, great actor, yeah. great movie. Uh, I have to go with that. I'd say from Stand Up Guys, Doc, played by Christopher Walken. The movie itself is eh, but I like Chris Walken, and there's this really, you see this, this, this thing play out about friendship and business and how those are where they kind of level out against one another. Next, I'd say uh, Jamie Foxx's Django from Django Unchained. Django! That's a good call. I like Django. Yeah. Um, James Bond, uh, most recently, uh, played by Daniel Craig. Uh, uh, despite what you may think, he has a license to kill. That's his only license, is a license to kill. Is yeah. You make a point. He yeah. doesn't need a driver's license. He lives in London. <laughs> Just walk everywhere. Yeah. Take the, take the metro. Uh, regardless, James Bond is, is a overqualified hitman who... If he is able to save the day in the world from something, then then good for him. But first and foremost, let's make sure the baddies get get got. In mm-hmm. fact, in Casino Royale, he does say, uh, you want me to be half monk, half hitman. He isn't able to become 007 until he has killed two people. Two people. So, James Bond, I love you. Uh, finally, I'm going to say Anton Chigurh from No mm. Country for Old Men. Oh, that's a good pick. Yeah. And, uh, you know, anybody that can make a cow gun look that threatening and dangerous has got to be bad. And Javier Bardem really is incredible in that role. And so that's a fun movie. Don't put it in your pocket. It's just another coin. <laughs> Which it is. Lipstick. I laugh every time I see that ride commercial. Well, thank you for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, Dalton Stewart, what are your picks? Well, uh, you know, I, I stuck really pretty much with Assassins, no Vigilantes. Because al- although the Boondock Saints are, you know, Vigilantes... Um, their, their style, uh, their presentation is, is so reminiscent uh, of of movie uh, assassins and hitmen uh, that I, I don't think you can separate the two. I, honestly, I really don't. Um, so that's kind of what I stuck with on my list. First and foremost, I want to say uh, Leon, the titular Leon of Leon the Professional. Uh, it, it, to me, is probably the best hitman assassin movie um, I just love that film. It's it's a much better version of this movie. There's actually a direct reference to that movie in this movie where they talk about the Duke's rules, uh, no women, no kids, which mm. is Leon's rule in The Professional. Direct quotation. And mm-hmm. It's a much better film, and you can tell it's a huge influence on this film. Right. Uh, I, another Luc Besson production, though, um, would be La Femme Nikita, which is about a government assassin. Uh, that's a really good movie. You guys haven't checked it out. It's you know spawned two different TV shows and an American remake. Uh, that French movie is the best one of the ones I've seen. I haven't seen the new Nikita show. I've heard it's okay. But Lefebvre Nikita is a really good movie. It's a really solid action I like thriller. I, I, I like it bunches. Um, I would also say, and I didn't think of this till Arthur said Django um, because of Jamie Foxx, but I would say Tom Cruise's character in Collateral, uh, the Michael mm, Mann film. Nice. I like him a lot. I really like that movie a lot. That's a good movie. Um, that's probably the only Michael Mann film that I can actually come close to saying I really, 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 really like. I still don't love it. I don't love any of his movies. I wish I did. No. I like Heat, but I really like Collateral. I think Collateral is damn close to being a a great film. No. I really do. I like it I like it that much. I 
Genuinely do. Um, I would say one of my favorites, though, is Martin Q. Blank, played by... Oh, man, yeah. I was going to pick that. Man, Weren't you? I, very I, good. I told you I thought you would. Yeah. Uh, because, man, I just love John Cusack, and I love yeah. that movie. He's, that movie's great. What am I supposed to say at my reunion? Uh, oh, that's great. I killed the president of Paraguay with a fork. It's <laughs> a great line. <laughs> well, um, my and, that's, and that's really all I've got for you. Uh, I did forget one thing, though. Um... Because alone amongst all those picks, I still go Leon from The Professional, and here's why. Because he is awesome, and he's a good character, but you should watch that movie before you watch any of these other movies, because it has my favorite Gary Oldman moment of all time. The best, probably Gary Oldman's greatest moment as an actor. Gary Oldman's finest moment. Finest <laughs> ever. Dustin, what what would you say are your picks uh, for this 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 game we decided to play this tonight? We've done it on the show. I can't believe it didn't come up already. Uh, Brandon Lee's The Crow. This was the uh, vigilante vengeance film for me um, as a young man that I saw that I thought was uber awesome. It's still pretty good. And there was a moral obligation in it in that it was sort of revenge for a personal loss felt. Doesn't make it any better. But it somehow assuages the guilt for me. I, I, for some, yeah, it's, I'm with you. It actually makes it morally more justifiable. It's not, but it it is. somehow feels that way, it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and it checks. So, it checks out. It you know it passes the incorrectly check for me. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I like that uh, a lot. I also um, love the pair of Hitman in Pulp Fiction, um, Jules and Vince. I'm more of a Jules guy than a Vince guy. As which, you should be. Which is a shocker to no one. I do have a passage from Ezekiel memorized. Um, it's not like that in Ezekiel, if you look it up, by the way, dear listener. That's a false Bible verse. Yeah, it, well, it's close in places. But it's the Bible just doesn't sound as awesome as Sam Jackson doing that. Because <laughs> it turns out the Bible's not that vindictive. Also, uh, for uh, favorite hitmen and slash uh, vigilantes, Batman? Anybody? I guess me and Arthur really just kind of stuck with hitmen. Yeah. I think you keyed it on the vigilante more. Because, I mean, Batman is absolutely that, right? (sighs) And he's he's so much fun, and I love him so much. Uh, I was going to say Martin Blank. Uh, so it's a good pick, man. Dittos and what were you going to say about Martin Blank, though? That, that he's awesome. That movie's great. It was formative for my growing up, and yeah. it's just fantastic. Other than the kind of the weird action finale, which isn't choreographed that well. Yeah, well, the yeah. movie itself is totally awesome. Mm-hmm. It totally is. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I like it a lot, a whole lot, whole 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 lot. And uh, it's, it's a goodie. It should be seen by all the people. Do you know, it was one of the very first movies I rented from Netflix. On their DVD service. Really? Yep. Because uh, I had been wanting to see it for years and years and years and years and just could never find it. It's kind of hard to find, actually. Really? I, have, yeah. I haven't seen it in years. I it's, mean, it's got that cult following, but it, yeah, it is it is not an easy DVD to run down. No doubt sure. last time I saw it, I saw it on VHS. There you go. So, I mean, that's that's that totally checks out for me. But yeah, I, I, I do like them. I do enjoy a, a good uh, romp of that sort. And of course, Liam Neeson... Um, Given the speech, uh, in uh, taken, taken in, in the film, taken. I, it's just, yeah, that's that. That is a great bit of vigilantism um, which, slash hitman. <laughs> which, film. which, unlike the Boondock Saints, for two Americans pretend to be Irish, that's an Irishman pretending to be American. Which is also interesting in different ways, isn't yes. it? So, uh, thank you for that, gentlemen. Um, that's some great picks. Uh, let's move on and talk about what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. Dalton, are you fired up? Hey, yeah, you know, I am a little bit. Um, I, I want to start out by saying that I'm really excited about uh, Seth MacFarlane's latest project. Mm-hmm. No, the it's West not A Million Ways to Die in the West. It's actually Cosmos, a space-time oh. odyssey hosted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, which Seth MacFarlane is an executive producer on, which is what? the weirdest thing in the world to me. I didn't know that. Uh, Cosmos is totally awesome. Um, if you are a, a, a nerd of any kind, you'll like it, but if you're interested in science, you'll also really like it. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I like you it a too. Lot. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's awesome. I, it's so it's so good. Um, yeah, it's just really informative, but they 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 do it in a manner that makes uh, very dense material that could be boring, 
uh, really engaging and interesting. And that's something I really appreciate about this. You can cut this part if you want. Uh, another thing I like about it, though, is that it takes material that can be very confrontational uh, to people who have a religious background. And really, it goes out of its way, I feel like, to welcome them in and say, Hey, look, I know this might be hard for you to deal with, but we're pretty sure this, is ha- this has happened. And, and, and here's why it doesn't conflict with what you, you, you believe. Uh, and I think that's really cool because it would have been much easier just be like, screw you, uh, we're going to go ahead and do this, uh, you know, and deal with it, dummy. Um, and instead it said, welcome in, brothers and sisters in existence, and here's science, and welcome to the party, pal. And I'm glad because they're probably being more generous than I would be. So good for them. Uh, I also fired up this week uh, about a game that's been available on PC that's uh, through Steam for a while, but I, I played on PlayStation 4, and that is a game called Outlast, which is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. It's a first-person survival horror game in which you are a journalist trying to expose the baddie bads going on at a um, mental institution being run by some, you know, for-profit corporation, um, and it is deeply horrifying. Mm. You have to walk around with your video camera out so you can record what's happening and take notes on what's mm. happening. Uh, and you have to use your night vision on your camera to see in the dark, but batteries are limited. Guys, it, it is so terrifying, I'm not exaggerating, that myself and two other, no, sorry, three other grown men were just like peeing their pants, screaming at the top of their lungs and saying, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I gotta stop, I gotta stop, I gotta stop. How's that different from Tuesdays for you? It was a Saturday. Okay. Um, it, it is legitimately one of the most horrifying things I've ever experienced. It is... Easily scarier than the last five horror movies I saw. It's just, oh my god, it's it's so horrifying. I, I will never play it again. I played it for about an hour, and I, I don't think I'll ever touch it ever again. Because wow. it's five hours long. Horror movies are only two hours long, and you don't have to make people go into the dark room. This game is five hours long, and you have to continually make people go into the dark room. And guess what? You don't get any weapons. All you can do is hide or run, and it's awful. Ugh. Video games are supposed to be... We're supposed to be a chance to enact power fantasies. This game is the opposite of that, and it's mm. cripplingly terrifying. And I'm getting scared just thinking about it. Wow. Moving on. Impressive. As Caleb and I believe Arthur mentioned a couple weeks in a row, the Star Wars, the Clone Wars animated series is now available on Netflix. I checked out the first couple episodes, and I am thoroughly unimpressed. I'm going to keep trying, but mm-hmm. it's kind of shitty. Uh, Dustin says, uh-huh, because he has small children, and, and it's a show it with popular them. with children. It's not very good, man. Mm-mm. It's really bad. If I was a kid, I'd probably think it was awesome. But it's not very good. And as a Star Wars fan, I'm used to digesting a lot of things that aren't very good. Uh, finally, um, I'm excited about a thing that literally came to my attention as we were recording. And that is Kim Kardashian and Kanye West's Vogue shoot. Which is the weirdest, wackiest thing I've ever seen. And it's just so funny. Normally I don't care about celebrity news. Uh, but I looked through this Vogue photo shoot. And it is hilarious. If you want to look at how wacky rich people are, go enjoy that for yourself, because it's a big old bag of cats. Excellent. Thank and I'm you. done. Thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, are you fired up as well? No. No? No. no. Nope. Net. Uh, I, the new trailer for uh, Days of Future Past has premiered, and it's probably the my highly anticipated film of this year, because I love First Class a lot. Yeah. And so I'm excited to see this one. It's um, a goodie. I just want to give a shout out. I I'm really enjoying the Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Really, I think he's doing a great job, and so I'm I'm impressed. I was never a big fan of Jimmy Fallon on Saturday Night Live, um, but I think he does well as his in his host role, and so I think he really connects with his audience. So I like that about it. Um, yeah, other than that, I've I've nothing. Wow, Dad's, I'm dead over here. No, it's fine. I'll tell you what, I don't really care about the Tonight Show, but I did see. Speaking of Kevin Bacon, who's come up once already on the show, I think that's these mark like the third, second, and third time Kevin Bacon's ever come up on the show. Forget six degrees for that, right? Yeah. <clears throat> oh God, we did used to do that. That's right. Um, wow, totally forgot about that. that was like we stopped doing that for episode two. Anyway, I saw the Jimmy Fallon sketch. Yeah, that was delightful. Yeah, the Kevin Bacon sketch. Fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. No, dancing! On the Tonight Show. <laughs> uh, that was so wonderful. 
Well, um, as we bring this week's episode to a close, I kick it over to you, Mr. Dustin Sells. Are you fired up about anything or everything in popular culture? Well, of course, all the things, but I'll limit my list to two things, right? Um, in a specific category of thing, which is uh, cover music. Now, I'm not a big fan of remakes in general. Uh, because, you know, remakes, they got problems, and there's, there's, they're problematic things of themselves, by themselves. Um, interestingly to note, um, Brian De Palma and uh, Al Pacino's uh, film Scarface, the remake has gotten a director recently, and so there may be something like that going down. The, the remake of the remake of the remake. Which is exactly what I said. I saw this entire discussion on Twitter where they're talking about, oh, I can't believe they're remaking this. Oh, it's terrible. They're going to remake this movie. And I just wrote it and I said, this movie is a remake. This one is a remake of a Jimmy Cagney movie from the 30s. 30s. So. Yeah, yeah, it's 50 years as opposed to 30 years, but still remake. Nonetheless, yeah, it's a remake. But so, but remaking music is something I give far more grace towards. Um, and uh, Kavahi is her name. It's K A W E H I, um, and. I Am Kavahi is, is sort of her tag on her website, has remade uh, Nirvana's Heart Shaped Box. Which is probably their best song. It, I, yeah, I think it's fair to say it's their best song. And it is also, um, she's, she's, a, uh, she's a looper, uh, so she is... Which is not, not like a Joseph Gordon-Levitt <laughs> movie. Not, not Brian Johnson movie. It, it is, instead, it is uh, this, she, she, she loops the sounds, she, she beatboxes, uh, she is making use of a, uh, a MIDI uh, piano player, or piano synthesizer, I guess you should say, and, uh, and whatnot, but she's doing it all herself, creating all the loops, all the layers, all by herself, and then plays Heart Shaped Box. And it is amazing. Dustin showed it to us before we recorded. And I, oh, so cool. It made me really, really happy. The other thing that's making me happy is also more cover band stuff. And this is about time travel with cover bands. And I'm talking about Postmodern Jukebox. Uh, this group of uh, various jazz and 50s uh Revival musicians are taking contemporary songs, you know, like Call Me Maybe, and turning it into a doo-wop song. They're doing uh, 40s big band jazz versions of Sweet Child of Mine, doo-wop versions of uh, Miley Cyrus songs. It's amazing. There's a bluegrass version of Blurred Lines. And uh, it's hilarious. So Google them both. Listen to them um, compulsively, repetitively, and uh, buy their things because I want more of what they're doing. Um, Kavahi is doing some original music, I believe, at this point. I think Postmodern Jukebox, what they're doing is just the covers. That's the thing that they're yeah, doing. Yeah, I mean, based on the name alone, you would assume. So I think that's what they're up to. Um, Kavahi's doing some different sorts of things, but she's got a handful of covers. There's a Michael Jackson song. There's a, She does a great um, version of Closer, the Nine Inch Nails song. And uh, so there's stuff out there to be heard. A.K.A. the sexiest song ever recorded. And let's just say it got a little sexier when she did it. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Trent Reznor's pretty beautiful. Well, you be the judge, dear listener. Um, nonetheless. Ladies, back me up. Trent Reznor a <laughs> fox. Women of a certain age know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the point being... Mostly uh, Dustin's age, oddly enough. Strangely. Um, cover music... <laughs> It's a good thing. It's something I like. And I like people who do these things. I mean, I, I began to be a fan of this. I heard Richard Cheese's uh, version <laughs> of Sickness. And, you know, it's great. And Richard so, Cheese is so great. I, I need more of these sorts of things in my life. Dear listener, if you know these things, send them my way. Because I'm quite anachronistic in my musical tastes. So, hook a brother up. But let's move on and move on out. Uh, that's the show, dear listener. We're so glad you stayed with us all this time. Next week, we begin our space exploration extravaganza where we go boldly where no good trash marathon has ever gone before. And uh, we're going to start it all off with a film called Event Horizon. And uh, I believe it's somehow a mixture of Dante and Star Trek. I don't know how that happens or works. I haven't seen it. People have been telling us for a long time we need to watch this movie. Not just the Good Trash genre cast, but 
all of us individually. Yeah. I, I know both of you guys have mentioned to me that people have been telling you see People have been telling me see forever. Forever. And yet, as I recall, did it not do kind of poorly uh, upon its initial release? It was not a big sure. box office smash, but I think it was one of those long late winter, early spring releases, so that didn't help it. Yeah. From, from uh, Mr. Paul W.S. Anderson. Oh, that's when I saw it. Yeah. Well, there's that. Uh, so. Wait, he directed it? Did he write it? I don't know if we read it. God, I hope not. Sam Neill in it, though. Sam Neill in it? And Lawrence Fishburne. I'm on board. Dr. Alan Grant and, and Jack Morpheus. Crawford. I was going to say Morpheus. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. Or Ice Cube's dad. In, uh... <laughs> or the angry old man in Predators when they yeah. find him on the planet. God, that's a weird movie. <laughs> anyway, dear listeners. So, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm still thinking about how awesome Lawrence Fishburne is in um... everything. Oh, my God. What is the name of that movie? Boys in the Hood. There we go. He's not even Ice Cube's dad. He's, he's Cuba Gooding Jr.'s dad. He's quite good at age 14 in... Um, Platoon. Apocalypse Now. That's, now. No, that's Forrest Whitaker. No, it's not. It's Larry, it's Larry Fishburne. That's right. Forrest Whitaker is, the, is in Platoon. Dear listener, the movie is Event Horizon. We hope you take a look at it and uh, let us know what you think. Of course, let us know what you think about everything we've said so far. Uh, give us your picks. What's got you fired up this week in pop culture? What's going on in the world of movies? And in the meantime, between now and next time we're able to stimulate your oral lobes, we ask that um, you watch a movie with somebody you care about and have a conversation because there's a lot more to these movies than just... Uh, an hour and a half and a good bag of popcorn and uh, we hope to see you next time.
But um, I'm just going to keep talking while Dustin lets his dogs in. And if Arthur decides to cut this, that's fine. And uh, if he decides to put it at the end of the show and you listen all the way through our outro music and you hear this, uh, you really need to find something better to do because we're not that interesting. <laughs> you don't have to go home. You just got to get the hell out of here.